So I, I, I tried to pry some stories out of the kids there. They, they did pretty good. Um, when we get together with family and, and friends that we've known for a long time especially, um, especially when it's kind of a, a relaxed atmosphere, everybody's comfortable, kind of casual, doesn't it kind of go back to stories very quickly? Many of the stories you already know, you've already heard, you've probably spoken them many times or heard them spoken. How many of you have someone in your family who has the gift of gab? Somebody? Any, like aunt, uncle, cousin, somebody? Maybe more than one of them. I don't know. Maybe the whole family. Who knows? I don't know. But um, there's, there's usually at least someone that, that loves to tell the stories again, and they, they'll... Sometimes the little ones will, will ask to hear that story. They've heard it before, but, you know, Uncle Joe says it's with such passion and, and he's so fun. And, you know, Aunt, Aunt Sally, she, she, I love her stories, and they do that. Imagine for a moment <clears throat> you were in with your family. When I say your family, I mean the household that you grew up in. Now, maybe some of those people are no longer with us. Um, sometimes, sadly, there's broken relationships where those people don't get together anymore. Or it's been too long, and maybe something's wrong, or maybe no one's bothered to make the invite. But let's just suppose for a moment you're there with parents, with siblings. And then one by one, you tell your story of your family, and everyone listens to the others. Do you think it's going to sound the same? Now, there are certainly basic features that are going to be similar, but each person's perspective of the story of your family is their story within the larger context of that family story. And what's, the way it impacted you, the way you remember it, might be a little different than your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad, but it doesn't mean they're not true or you're not right. It simply means... We, we remember it differently. We have a different perspective on it. Especially if you're able to share the difficult things. Especially if there was troubles in your family, and every family has them in one form or another. Hurtful times and moments that, you know, you don't really talk about anymore. Hopefully it was, you know, um, it was forgiven and, and things have moved on. Perhaps it wasn't. But we, we tell these stories the way that, that, that we remember them because our memories are influenced by a whole variety of factors. And the thing that I'm going to point out might not be the thing my brother or sister does. That's kind of similar to what we see with this man named Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Stephen told a very familiar story. And when I say familiar... He's sitting among the most learned and educated and prominent men in Jerusalem. This is the Sanhedrin. These are teachers of the law, Pharisees, Sadducees, and the high priest and former high priest. They're all there together, and they are there because Stephen is in trouble. Stephen is in big trouble because the apostles were told to stop this preaching about Jesus, to stop, stop claiming that he rose from the, from the dead, to stop blaming them for sending him to that cross. And yet each time they did that, and we've read that in the opening chapters of Acts, when Peter and John were first taken before them after healing someone, they warned them sternly. When the apostles were brought back in later, as the church grew and grew, 
They said, again, you can't do this anymore, and they were so angry, I think they wanted to kill them then, but Gamaliel, one of their own, calmed the room with his wise words that if this is not from God, then it's going to fall apart. If it is from God, you can't stop it. But their anger was still such that they had them flogged, whipped horribly, blood on their back, wounds that would take a long time to heal. And now their tactics have changed. They can't seem to stop this new belief, this, this, this teaching about Jesus being the Messiah that, that none of them embraced or even considered for the most part, but it keeps growing. Well, why don't we find someone who's not among those 12? They're, they're pretty strong about this, but what if we pick out you know, just one of the other people and they had a good target, and his name was Stephen. Stephen was selected by the apostles we looked at last week in, in the sixth chapter to be among those who would primarily care for the needs of the widows which had been neglected, and they wanted to make sure that was done. But he was also a good teacher and a good preacher, and he did that. And so when they found him and they, and they heard the, saw people listening to him, they brought him before the Sanhedrin. And now, and each time these believers in Jesus come before this group, the, it, it just ups the ante. It, it, it gets more and more dangerous, literally, because their anger grows and grows and grows, and the frustration of not being able to stop this, the frustration that why aren't the people listening to them? Why are they listening to these guys? But now they have Stephen, just a regular guy maybe. But his power given to him by the Spirit was uh, even more than they could handle. So what we see here in the seventh chapter then is, as I said, it's 60 verses long, so we're going to, I read the the, the closing verses here. But what we see is Stephen tells the story. And it begins in the first verse, it says, the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? A reasonable question. You're preaching about Jesus. You're preaching that, that he, he is alive, he's the Messiah. So defend yourself. This is your chance, Stephen. He knows how angry they are. He knows they've been warned, and he's still doing it. So what does he choose to do? Well, he tells um, a story about where we find God. Now, it's not directly in the story, but as you'll see as we look at the examples of of these these familiar characters from what we call the Old Testament and their stories, we're going to see what Stephen is getting at that eventually got them so mad, they just dragged him out in the street and threw rocks at him until he was dead. What would bring that kind of anger? What were they defending? What were they afraid of? What was in their heart or wasn't in their heart that they would do such a horrible thing to one of their own people? Where do we find God? He begins talking about Abraham. That's the right place to begin. These are all Jewish people, including including Stephen. So you go to Abraham, the father of their nation, and you tell his story. But when he tells Abraham's story, he, he, he starts where it begins in, in Genesis about, you know, God called him to go to a new land. 
And it tells us about how, how God established a, a covenant with him or a promise that, that um, if you go to this new land and, and, and you, you know, obey me, then I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. All nations will be blessed through you. And so this was the, the covenant that was established, uh, the Old Covenant, or as we call it as Christians, the Old Testament. Same word, basically. So this is how it began with Abraham. But if you know anything about this guy, Abraham, you know that, well, his story takes up um, many chapters in the book of Genesis, and usually you would think about, okay, the starting point, which he did, but he doesn't really say, except very much in passing, about Isaac and about the fact that, that Isaac, Abraham, and Sarah's only son, they waited for decades and prayed fervently, and they were so old they shouldn't be able to have children anymore, but miraculously they did finally. He mentions nothing about Hagar, the maidservant, who, you know, gave birth to a son through Abraham to sort of take things in his own hands because God was taking too long, and Ishmael was his name. He says nothing of that. Doesn't really talk about Abraham having to take his only son that was born to Sarah eventually and sacrifice him, but God stopped him at the last second to test his faith. He says nothing of that. But what he does talk about Abraham is how he was obedient to the covenant that God gave him to go find a place, a land. Not sure where it is just yet, but he was obedient to that. So then it, it, it moves on in the continual story of Genesis at this point, and it, he, he doesn't say a lot about Jacob either. And he mentions him. He's the, the son of Isaac, one of uh, two brothers, Jacob and Esau. But J J Jacob had multiple sons, and he had, so there was 12 of them who they are called um, patriarchs here in the word in, in, in verse 9, in, in verses 8 and 9 of Acts 7. And because the patriarchs were jealous of their own brother Joseph, it says in verse 9, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him. Now notice there, God is with him is an important statement because rather than going to look, looking somewhere geographically to say, here's where God is. So we have to move to that spot. And when we get there, we'll find him. He will show himself somehow. And yet, when Joseph went very unwillingly, being almost killed by his own brothers, but then being sold as a slave into Egypt, he said God was with him. But then Stephen, in his telling, doesn't give all the details of Joseph. Now, there's a very long and wonderful story in the later chapters of the book of Genesis. But when he's talking about him, he um, you know, doesn't, doesn't mention you know, too much about Joseph other than the, the brothers and the fact that they all land in Egypt in the end. So when you get to the end of Genesis, they're in Egypt. Maybe that's where God is. Now, if you lived in the ancient world in the time of, of, of the Old Testament, then you would have thought, the way, the way the average person would think, 
Well, first of all, there's many gods, and you worship many different ones. You were probably handed them when you were born, and you learned about them. And there were temples to these gods in various places. And the, the bigger your temple, the stronger your god. Or, or if your nation was, uh, was powerful, then that must be a really powerful god that that nation is worshiping. So the empire of the earth at that time, the greatest empire, was Egypt. So they must have really good gods. So God must be down there. We'll find our God among all of those other gods somehow. And that's where they lived. And that's, that's where at the end of Genesis, Jacob and all the brothers were there. And then you go from the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus. You know how many years pass? 400. Which, by the way, is the same number at the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, to the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew and the other Gospels. 400 years. Long time. Long time for these people who were chosen by God, blessed you know, through Abraham to become a great nation, and they were growing in this nation, and eventually, they, at first living peacefully among the Egyptians, but eventually the Egyptians felt threatened, and a pharaoh that knew nothing of Joseph, didn't care about Joseph from way, way back, thought, we're going to have to put these people into slavery or they're going to overrun us. And that's what happened. And so God brings someone named Moses. Now, when Moses, he, he was called um, out of Egypt and, excuse me, he, the people were told to follow Moses out of Egypt, but what I want to mention here is what, again, wasn't mentioned. If you were, I don't know what you know or don't know about Moses, uh, one of the more familiar characters in the Old Testament, and if you were talking to someone who never heard of him, and you say, tell me a little bit about this guy Moses, you, you, you'd probably start with, well, his birth, you know, the, the, very sadly, the Pharaoh was so afraid of the growth of these people that he all the babies killed, all the baby boys, and, and Moses was one of them, but his mother protected and put him in the Nile, and the Pharaoh's daughter found him and raised him as her own. That's a, that's a great story. But then you, you might say, well, he, after going to the burning bush, which Stephen does mention, Stephen doesn't mention these things. He doesn't say what the plagues were. He doesn't mention the Passover. He doesn't say anything about the Passover. The last plague, the one that, that they were set free from, the Passover, the, the celebration that to this day is the most holy of days for Jewish people, he doesn't say anything about the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the angel of death passing over, none of that. Stephen doesn't, doesn't throw that into his story about Moses as, as part of this larger story. And he doesn't talk about the Red Sea and, and the chariots being washed in the water. I mean, good grief, even Cecil B. DeMille remembered that part, and there's Charlton Heston with a big stick in the air, and it worked, you know? But it was because, because Stephen had another purpose in what he was telling about Moses. So if we look at the 35th verse of Acts 7, and again, I'm summarizing a lot here, but I just want you to see the flow of the story that Stephen is saying before these angry people, these angry leaders. Um, he says, this is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He sent he has sent to be, excuse me, he was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. 
through an angel who appeared to him in the bush. And he led them out of Egypt, performed wonders and signs, that's all he says about the plagues, at the, and at the Red Sea. He mentions that, but that was it, not how it happened and what happened in the end. Now, what that tells us is that his focus was on the reaction to the, of the people to Moses himself and his leadership, how they, they weren't accepting of it at first. But when all those wonderful miracles and signs happened, they said, okay, hey, we can leave now. Great, no more slavery. Yahoo! And they packed up their stuff and you know, got chased by the army. The Red Sea happened. They crossed the sea. Egypt is literally behind them. No more. Now what? What's going to happen now? So God gave him the living word. Now, at the 37th verse, it says this. Again, this is Stephen speaking about Moses. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with, with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with their ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. So Moses got the law. Now that too, there's a lot more to say about several books, you know, like Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Or all of them contain in, in, in parts the law of Moses. And he didn't talk in detail about that, but he just said that it was living words to be passed on. Living words. Jesus is the Word, John 1. The Word became flesh, living word. So he's, he's emphasizing that there is something more than just a place that a land that Abraham's people would one day inherit or a place like Egypt where there was a lot of gods going on but not the real one or this Mount Sinai where Moses met with God and got this law, these ways to live, these, these rules for the community, all of that because there was a whole nation all of a sudden it's day one. The Red Sea's behind them. Now what? Well, here. Here's how I would like you to live. Here's how you can succeed. And all of that was right there. But how did the people respond? They rebelled. They rebelled and were led into exile. And for 40 years, this nation wandered in the wilderness and God fed them so they stayed alive and all eventually died naturally except for... Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. And now it was time to move on under the leadership of Joshua. Again, not a lot of details about Joshua and Jericho and those kind of things, but just that he was the leader. But here's what he does emphasize about Joshua is the tabernacle. The tabernacle. And that is <clears throat> mentioned in verse 45. And it says, after receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land from the time of da until the time of David. That's a long time. That's centuries. The tabernacle was a really nice tent. <laughs> Fairly big, but in other words, it wasn't a permanent structure, and yet God gave them some, some rules about, about worship and about sacrifice, and this was a place of worship. So they, they had a fixed location, well, kind of, because it got moved a lot, but 
by the time you got to David, and David was responsible for bringing the nation to, to a time of peace. He was a great warrior and, and settled the borders. And, and so after he settled the borders and settled down, he wanted to make this structure permanent. He said, Lord, I want to build a temple, not just have a tabernacle. We want a fixed location. So again, there's that question, where do we find God? This land we have to find someday, and not in Egypt where we lived for, for hundreds of years. And, and while well, he met with Moses on Mount Sinai, the people at the foot of Mount Sinai, that's where they built a golden calf, and we're going to go back to Egypt. And then they wandered for 40 years. They finally, under Joshua, conquested the land that was promised to Abraham. But still, that wasn't working out. They weren't very obedient. Read the book of Judges and see how things went bad and sideways many times, over and over again. And then eventually there's kings, and God warned them about having a king. It's not going to go well all the time, but God gave them a king. First named Saul, then named David. But you see, all of these, these attempts are to somehow find God. So if we have a tabernacle, that's where God is, right? That's where we get things right with God. We go to the tabernacle. And David saw that wasn't working. Let's build something permanent. God says, okay, here's the, here's the, the blueprint for a temple, but I'm not going to have you do it. I'm going to have Solomon do it. So that happened. And Solomon was very rich, and he was responsible for building the temple. And it was the most, one of the most immaculate buildings in all of ancient history. And now their religion, their God had a place of, uh, up on this on the hill in Jerusalem, and you could see it for miles around, and they could be proud. The other nations would see that and think, wow, their God must be pretty good. Look at that temple. But here's where Stephen's history lesson before the Sanhedrin takes a turn. Now, that temple was eventually destroyed by the Babylonians, but then Herod, um, about a century no, I'm sorry, several decades, excuse me, several decades before Jesus, Herod built another temple. And it was just as nice, maybe even more so than what Solomon built. It was also very immaculate and beautiful, and that was the temple that they were sitting in with the Sanhedrin at that moment. That was the temple that Jesus saw. That was the temple when the disciples asked Jesus, wow, look at this place. And Jesus said, not one stone will be left on another. That was the temple that he was next to when Jesus said, if you destroy this temple, meaning his body, I will rise it up in three days. And that's what he got criticized for, and that's what the apostles got criticized for, because how dare you even suggest that the temple is going to be destroyed? Now, Jesus was speaking of himself, that he would be, this, this body, his body, would be killed, but then come back to life, which indeed he did. But then, prophetically, Jesus was right. Not one stone was left on top of another in the year 69 AD when the Romans got tired of those pesky Israelites, brought in a big army, and brick by brick, stone by stone, massive stones, knocked down every part of that temple. They got the gold in between the rocks, which is why they took it apart stone by stone. And you may remember this last year when we were looking at Mark. This was an interesting uh, possibility. It doesn't say that in the Bible, but there's other historical records about the time and place that the stones that were pulled apart on the temple might have been used to build the Colosseum in Rome. Not just part of it. That massive stadium, first stadium ever, anywhere that size. And so 
And there's a whole lot of interesting, you know, connections to that, if that's true. But, but what does matter is that the temple was destroyed. The Sanhedrin, whom Stephen was standing in front of, could not imagine a world without a temple. That was their world. That's why they were so angry. They felt it was their, their godly duty to protect the temple. To, as if, and, and the God of the temple, they had to defend him as well. So if someone makes a threat against the temple, suggests the temple is uh, going to be destroyed or doesn't matter or another God, then we're not going to stand for that and we're going to you know, arrest anyone who, who says so. That was their mindset in this mock trial with Stephen. Now, here's what Stephen then says. Now, up until this point, while they might have been a little puzzled that he didn't hit some of the highlights of these great patriarchs of the faith, Abraham, Moses, and Joseph, and David, they were probably kind of at least grudgingly nodding their heads. Okay, okay, he knows our history. Okay, this is good. Yeah, you got that right, Stephen. Okay, this isn't going too bad for you. And then it takes a turn at the 48th verse. Okay, so the verse before said, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. Verse 48. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. What? You mean God's not here? You mean God isn't hanging out there in the Holy of Holies? That we go into the high priest once a year, he takes the sacrifice of the blood of the lamb in a very... Uh, in a very intricate and detailed ceremony and he walks in there and, and offers that blood and the people of the are now forgiven for one year until the next year day of atonement comes the next year you mean that doesn't work you mean that's not happening they couldn't even consider such a thought what do you mean God doesn't live here but this is what Stephen is getting at this man who believed in, believed all of those stories and knew they were true, but saw what they were leading to, saw what they were teaching, saw what, how they would be fulfilled in Jesus. And then he quotes in verse 49, Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet of Old Testament times. The book of Isaiah is quite long, six, six chapters. The last chapter of the book could be said to be kind of a summary of all the other prophecies that came before. And what does Isaiah say here? Or the word, the message from God through Isaiah. In verse 49, this is Stephen quoting what Isaiah said. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of a house will you build for me, says the Lord. Now stop there. If you're one of the leaders in the Sanhedrin, you're taking care of the temple and the worship and you believe God lives there. And here's the important thing, that if people don't come through you, then you have no access to God. Now imagine the power they had. They didn't really have that power. God's not, that's not what God wanted them to do, but that's the way it worked. If you want to connect with God, you have to go through the high priest and the priestly system and the sacrificial system and the way they tell you to carry it out. And you can't fight it. And you can't change it. So don't even try. So when Stephen is quoting him there, 
and says, what kind of a house will you build for me? The Sanhedrin very easily could have been thinking, well, look what we built for you. Isn't this wonderful? And we are the keepers of this place, and we're going to make sure the people obey. But then Isaiah goes on to say, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. And now it turns completely. Now, Stephen says in the 51st verse, You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. That's when the room went nuts. Nuts with anger. It says it in the next verse. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, okay, what is this? In the 54th verse, this is what Stephen just said about being stiff-necked. And, and when he's making the, bringing this indictment against them about being rebellious and stiff-necked, he's saying it to those in the room on that day. But in effect, he's also saying about historically the leadership and the priestly line of, of, of the Israelites in the, and Judea has been messed up for a long time, and you're just like the rest of them. Nothing has changed. God had to give them the land. God had to give them the law. God had to give them the tabernacle. God had to give them the temple. Also, they would realize in the end that it's not working. Look how, look how corrupt things are. When Jesus went to that temple, how angry he got when he overturned the tables, when he was mad at those, what was going on in his father's house that they called his father's house. He knew it wasn't working, which is why he came. And he came not to abolish the law and the temple and all of that, but to fulfill it. So the Sanhedrin was furious, so furious, they gnashed their teeth, which is never a pleasant thought. <laughs> but the rage in their eyes. Now, now, at this point, it was similar to what they felt in prior encounters with 1 Peter and John. Then all of the apostles, they were really angry because of this accusation of killing Jesus, being responsible for him being dead. They're, they're tired of hearing that. They're tired of hearing that he's alive. They're just they're tired of it. And the anger builds up again. But then, what does Stephen do? Does he calm the anger? No. At the Spirit's direction, he pushes it further. And But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's when they couldn't take it anymore. Because he said the same thing that his Lord said when his Lord Jesus was standing before basically those same people. 
And while he was being quiet, as his accusers came up with all these phony stories, when the high priest said to him, are you indeed the son of God? And Jesus says, I am. And Jesus pushes it further as well to the same thing. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the father in heaven. That's when the Sanhedrin said, we got to crucify him now. And they worked it out so the Romans did it, but it was really their doing. This is when they couldn't take it anymore with Stephen, and they pushed him out the door. And as we mentioned last week, while they were, this is verse 59, while they were stoning him, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Like his Lord on the cross, for, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Stephen, forgive these men for rock, th- hurling big stones and rocks at my head. Wow. The Son of Man at the right hand of God. That was the purpose of Jesus coming, so that the world would know, first his own people, that God has indeed sent the one they've been waiting for, And it wasn't through a system of a temple or a tabernacle. And it wasn't about land and a nation and the borders and just being strong like they were when David was king. And it wasn't about going to Mount Sinai or going to Egypt. It wasn't about receiving power and uh, military power and then just wiping everyone else out who doesn't agree with them. That's the way the world thinks. That's the way humanity thinks. That's the way the sin nature thinks. That's not the way Jesus thinks. He sent them a new way. You cannot find God in land, in nations, in empires. What I mean by this, you cannot find God in the sense of relationship. Okay? You cannot find God in land, in nations, in empires, in, in obeying rules, in a tabernacle, in a temple, in a sacrificial system, in a theological system, or in a church building. You can only find God in the new and eternal temple. Jesus, the Christ. That's the way to God. He is the one that God sent to us. And so as we go and share in, in the cup and the bread in the moment, remember this. Only when you seek him in faith will you find him in your heart. This isn't proof logically, intellectually. Yes, now I see clearly because this lines up with history and okay, now I, my, logically this, I, can, I can accept Jesus. No, they, there, there will always and has to be an element of faith involved. Without faith, you cannot, it is impossible to please him, says in Hebrews. And in your heart is where God lives or where God wants to live. And we don't have to go to a, get a new nation. We don't have to, have to go to a temple or a tabernacle or to this lovely building that we're glad that we have. But you know what? When we all leave here today, it's completely empty and God isn't here because he went home with you. <laughs> He's in your car tomorrow morning, your way to work. He's with your kids this afternoon when you're driving your nuts. He's with you in the middle of the night when you can't sleep. He's, he's, he's with you in trouble. He's with you in COVID. He's with you in, 
in political anger. He's with you in racial injustice. He's with you in all the pain. He's with you. And you don't have to go somewhere to get him because he's already there. It is, it is us who stop the flow. God gave us a will, and he respects that will. And if you say, oh, God, you can't do this, and God sits back, well, all right, you stay there for a while, and then come back to me and tell me I can't do it again. I'm with you. I'm with you. They were so mad at Stephen for telling the truth that they killed him. Stephen forgave him with his last breath. Mm. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would take your word forth on our lives. We thank you for fellowship. We thank you for truth. We thank you for, for the bread and the cup that reminds us of the one and only and last sacrifice that ever had to be made, and that sacrifice is for us. And we believe that in faith. And we know God is with us, God is for us, God is in us, and he never leaves. Help us, Lord God, to embrace that truth as we share together. In your name we pray. Amen.